You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Claire O'Brien, a nurse practitioner. And today I have my friend, Dr. Laura Lambert, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician actually here in Charleston at the VA hospital. Um, Laura's 41. She grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, went to Duke, and then went to our alma mater, MUSC, for medical school and did her residency and fellowship at MUSC as well. Um, And we have so many things that we're going to talk about. Um, you guys are going to love it. Her story is just incredible and gets gets more incredible with age, if that's possible. Laura, whether you like it or not. So welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so I told um, Dr. Lambert this morning a couple of things that I wanted to, to talk about because I know a little bit of her life story. She was um, similar in years to my husband um, when he was in training and residency and everything. So I've, I feel like I've known of you for a really long time. And then Laura's dad was actually my boss um, for a while, who he's a gem of a human at absolute gem, you know. Um, but okay, I, I feel like we have to get started. Tell everybody your story, literally starting in high school, because, and that sounds absurd to go back to high school, but y'all are going to hear it is not absurd at all. So in high school, I actually got pregnant when I was 17. It was the first time that I had sex. Ah, I what? wanted to see your facial reaction. I know. <laughs> the first time I had sex using protection and I got pregnant. <gasps> I'm and shocked. I, to, I know. And I went to a private Christian high school. I never knew that. Yeah, it was, um, it was a little scandalous. I went to a <sighs> private Christian high school. Uh, I was pregnant. I was going to have an abortion, and I decided not to. And so I had my daughter my, November of my senior year. I was 17. Um, and... Uh, so many people told me that my life was not going to amount to anything after right. getting pregnant, that I was going to be a teenage mom, I was going to be, quote, barefoot and pregnant, right. and that I wasn't going to be able to to really amount to anything. And yeah. so I wanted to prove them wrong. And so I took my daughter with me to college. I, I went to Duke, and she went with me. We lived in an apartment on campus for the entire four years. Um, our neighbors downstairs called her pitter patter because she would <laughs> run and they could hear her, you know, running through the apartment. Um, she went to daycare while I went to classes. My parents watched her during the exam weeks, like during finals each semester. And um, I graduated and then went to medical school. And I mean, Duke, let's start- talk. That is crazy. I mean, you were at Duke University in pre med. You were mm-hmm. pre med at Duke University with a to- I mean, a freaking toddler. Like, that's. I. Yes. I cannot literally imagine. Like, how did you study? How did you go? I mean, I, I just. I can't wrap my brain around that. Yeah, I, I felt like I was a little bit more regimen or I had to have a routine. 
and obviously I didn't go out very much, so I didn't have a typical undergrad right. experience. Um, you know, she went to preschool and daycare while I went to classes, and then we came home and spent time together, and then she went to bed, and then I studied, and that was just kind of how it worked for the four years there. Yeah, and did you, like, gosh, I mean, that's that's crazy, and I know you said her dad was some in the picture, and but for the most mm-hmm. part, I, I mean, you were single mom in it hard. Yep. Yes. That is crazy. Um, Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely a unique experience to go to college and, you know, not go to parties and and not have the regular college experience, but it was definitely a unique one and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Well, it just speaks to how obviously number one, brilliant you must be and regimented and disciplined and to, to be able to, to do that and determined, I mean, to, Number one, have I, I can't imagine. I mean, I went to a small private school. It wasn't even a, a, a religious-based school, but I went to a small private school. And, you know, I mean, I can hear. I'm, I, I can hear things that I'm sure were, were said to you and um, just that you, you made that choice. And not this is not a podcast about a, the, the choices of abortion, but, you know, um, that, I'm sure that was the hardest choice you probably have ever had to make. Uh, definitely one of them for sure. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad I did what I did and, you know, not everyone's going to make that same decision and that's obviously their personal choice. But, um, you know, again, my daughter is my best friend now and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. So when you got to medical school, um, how she, she just, she tagged along and was your dad at MUSC then or had, did you go first or did he go first? So he came first and then I came down to Charleston because I felt like I couldn't do medical school really without my parents' help, um, yeah. just because of how, how difficult it is with our third and fourth year doing rotations and overnights. And I, I really felt like I needed my parents' support with that. Yeah. Um, so I started my first year of medical school and Taylor started first grade and we just kind of went through you know the four years together. She would sometimes uh, sit outside of the gross anatomy lab on weekends when I was studying in the lab and she would listen to different movies and I would tell her to knock on the door and not go into the gross anatomy lab because I didn't want her to see the dead bodies. <laughs> the dead bo- right, she, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That would scar her. <laughs> right. right. That's fair. And with how does she now that she's like fully an adult? I mean, has she, she in college or has she graduated? I can't remember how old she, she is. She's in grad school. She'll be 24 next oh my month. Gosh. Does she remember I that? I mean, is she like, Hey, remember that time I was like at the hospital with the, like, in the I dead think body she, lab? She, remember, she remembers bits and pieces and I think some more of stories, but, uh, like I'll definitely remind her that she didn't go to my graduation because she went roller skating instead. I'm sure she doesn't remember that, but I remind her <laughs> of that all the time. <laughs> She's like, Mom, you're embarrassing me. No, I'm not coming to right. the graduation. I'm, I'm right. seven, and I'm going to go to the to the roller rink or what, however yeah, she, it was. She, she wanted to go to Hot Wheels, so, I mean, I don't blame her. Roller skating's fun, and she plays roller derby now um, in Virginia, and she's See? on a team. So it was meant to be. She needed to miss it to get that love of roller skating. How were your colleagues just being, I mean, medical school is a little different because no one is really your call. You're just like the bottom of the rung. But when you were a resident and a fellow and still had, I mean, a fairly young child, how were your colleagues with that? Was it, did you feel different? 
being a woman and in that position? I didn't feel different um, because I guess really in medical school residency and fellowship, most of the females started having kids or were thinking about having kids. Uh And it was kind of nice because as Taylor got older, she was able to babysit for my coworkers' (laughs) kids. Right. So that worked out. So that worked out well for her and it worked out well for me because I became the popular resident that would pawn off her kid to babysit for all of the other residents. And you're like, everyone's winning in this situation because my kid is gone and and is at your house and you're paying her and it's Mm -hmm. a a winner for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And she makes money. So it is, it's a winner (laughs) for everybody. Right. Um, How did you choose pulmonary? It actually fell into my lap. I am a super indecisive person when it came to uh, what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was two years old, but I I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN and then I didn't match. I wanted to stay in Charleston. And so like I only applied here and I didn't match an OBGYN. And so I applied for a transitional year in medicine. Uh And so I got one year and then uh, they had a resident leave. So I was able to finish out my internal medicine residency, which is three years. And then at that point in time, I was going to work for a little bit and then decide on a fellowship. But the fellowship or the pulmonary department ended up expanding their fellowship program from four to five fellows. And they knew that I wanted to do pulmonary. And so they offered it to me. And I started right after graduation. So you did three years of internal medicine. And then how long is Mm -hmm. the pulmonary and critical care uh, fellowship? it's another three years, so oh, six good years God. of training. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. That is a lot. That is yeah. a lot. So do you feel qualified to talk about masks? <laughs> I'm sort of kidding, I, but you know I'm not. Right. So in regards to masks, um, obviously wear one. I think that it is important to note that face masks do not decrease your oxygen intake, and they also do not make you retain more carbon dioxide than usual. So oxygen and carbon dioxide are very small and they can pass through the face mask, uh, which is why we see doctors and nurses wearing them all the time uh, in the ORs, for example, and not passing out from CO2 retention. In comparison, droplets are much larger and cannot easily pass through a face mask. So that's why they encourage uh, face mask usage. I think, you know, face masks can slow the spread of uh, coronavirus. Using a face mask, washing your hands, and social distancing will ultimately slow the spread of the virus. So that makes sense. So, all right. Well, there's it that. It does make sense. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, what? Let's let's briefly talk on. Okay. So now that you guys have heard Laura's training, so she went to Duke, and then she went to medical school, and then she did three years of internal medicine, and then she did three years of literally. So pulmonary, if you're not familiar with the medical term, literally means lung. Like everything that has to do with breathing and lungs is what she specializes in. So. A couple of weeks ago, I asked Laura to respond um, to, there are just some, there are just some myths that seem to keep getting perpetuated. And I don't, 
understand it. And the biggest one that I think people really like to latch on to because it sounds more scientific than like maths don't work is the CO2. Um, So the Mm -hmm. argument that you're breathing. So we breathe out carbon dioxide, right? And then we don't want to breathe that back in. So there are people that are saying these masks are toxic. They're causing, you know, hypoxia or brain damage because you're breathing back in your own CO2. What, what, how would you explain that to the people? Um, I wish that I could explain to people that uh, CO2 retention that does not happen when you're wearing face masks, but it just seems like that, like you said, it is something that people still believe in. Um, the amount of CO2 that we breathe out and is retained in the mask is, is negligible. So it's not something that is, is even a factor. Right. So I so saw on TikTok last night too, that someone, this lady was saying, <laughs> I know I'm sorry, where everyone should be going for their medical information clearly. But I, there was this mm-hmm. video of this lady that was saying, uh, that the moisture in the mask too is causing us all to get, um, strep throat. And that was a new one to me because that's not possible. So I don't even really know where that came from. You're just like shaking, Laura's shaking her head. I wish everybody could see the video too. (laughs) I I haven't, I haven't heard that one either. (laughs) That doesn't actually make any sense. Um, No, but no, it doesn't. TikTok, this is why we should not listen to TikTok and, you know, get our science from doctors and Dr. Fauci and the CDC and things like that. Poor Dr. Fauci. I feel so bad for the. I mean, this dude has dedicated his freaking life to helping people, mm-hmm. and he is just getting totally shit on by people that don't understand what he does or what he stands for and why he does what he does. And it just makes me so sad for this poor little man. I, you know, I feel bad for him too. I mean, he's served six presidents. He, uh, you know, has written books, contributed articles. He was actually the uh, keynote speaker at the uh, most recent uh, pulmonary critical care uh, conference. And it's, it's, it's so unfortunate that he is, you know, in this position where people are not trusting him and not believing him and being made fun of. And, it's just really sad to see that physicians are being reduced to this. Yeah, especially him who, I mean, gosh, his entire life's work. And, you know, what? what one thing I think that people forget, too, when they're looking at, you know, recommendations and rules and legislation and things that are happening in America, like local, you know, mask laws and things like that, it's the same thing in the rest of the world. So this it's not like we have one guy that we're listening to and that's all we're basing our decisions on. I mean, this is a global effort. Like, it, it's not like America or is the only country telling people to wear a mask and, you know, closing things down and creating these. We're having to create these, you know, mandates and laws temporarily because no one's listening. And the thing is, it, it, it just I just think people forget this is what's going on in the rest of the world. This is not just an America problem right now. Right. And I think another thing that people don't realize is that this is an ever evolving uh, virus that we're learning about. I mean, it's it's new, relatively new. I mean, we've never seen a COVID-19 before. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to learn and change the ways that we treat things. Um, and, you know, what we were doing in 
March and April is not what we're doing now. And, and people seem to not understand that, which is, is right. frustrating. You know, masks weren't really regulated or even asked to be worn back in March, but we didn't know that it was airborne. We didn't, you know, yeah. we didn't know so many things about it, but now we do. And it's unfortunate that people are, you know, latching onto the fact that we're, it's evolving um, and that we're changing regulations. And so people get frustrated with that. Yeah. And what, so somebody asked me this yesterday, actually, are, are we saying that it's fully airborne now? Are you comfortable saying that? Yes. And, uh, the CDC actually came out on the fourth of this month, which is October. So October 4th, uh-huh. they came out saying that it was airborne. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, I missed that. Shockingly. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, yeah, that's, you know, exactly. Things change. And as, especially when something's new, you know, we're all just doing the best we can with the, the evidence that we have in front of us. And it, it's, it's hard, but I think that is really what's happening essentially to all of medicine is we're, as we learn new things and we're, you know, changing recommendations that then for some reason has created a distrust, you know, cause people are like, well, you said one mm-hmm. thing and now you're saying another. And it's like, well, yes, we had X, Y, Z data points in the beginning. And now we have, you know, a million more data points and we're making decisions based on that. Right. I mean, it's like that with, with any illness, you know, like cancers or HIV. I mean, we start out knowing, you know, some things and as you know, things evolve and our um, investigations get better and our drugs get better, you know, things change. And so it's, it's frustrating though, that people kind of latch on to what we've said previously and then get upset if we change something. Right. Which you would think that would be a good thing, you know, like, oh, okay, they're, they're listening to data and they're, changing the course based on the information that we have but it's you kind of can't nobody we can't win right now I mean you really you literally can't like if we stayed the old course we can't win if we change to a new course we can't win I mean it's 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 a it's a mess but speaking of cancer so I know how has this been for you the probably greatest year of your life so global pandemic you're a pulmonary physician and you just got diagnosed with stage three colon cancer I did. I was diagnosed in May of 2019 with stage three colorectal cancer. So it's actually rectal cancer, which is a little different than colon cancer. Okay. Um, That's what you had. Yep. But I um, was diagnosed and kind of thrust into a world of where I was a patient instead of a physician, uh, which has been challenging to say the least. Right. But um, it's it's been an it's been an interesting year. Yeah. I've gone through radiation, surgeries, 6 months of chemotherapy and in a pandemic. So, it's been it's been fun. So, it's been really fun all all around. <laughs> so, right. tell people, let's talk about colorectal cancer because I know um you and I talked a little bit when Chadwick Boseman died this year. Mm-hmm. And he was 40 was he 40 43 43. Mm-hmm. So, just a couple of years older than you, not much, but we don't even start screening typically until people are around 40. Um, but you know, it just brought up so much interesting conversation because I don't think people realize number one, how common it is. Number two, that it is a cancer that you have some control over, you know, the diet lifestyle modifications. There are a lot of risk factors that we now know are, are big in the colorectal world 
Um, and just how young that is, you know, that mm-hmm. you're 40, you were 41 when you were diagnosed, or you, were you 40? I was 40, 40. When you were diagnosed. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. have even had been set up probably for a screening yet. I mean. Right. So the American Cancer Society recommends screening starting at the age of 45 with a colonoscopy. Mm. Um, and so if I had waited, I, I wouldn't have been here if I had waited another five years because I had yeah. been having symptoms for about two and a half years prior to actually getting my colonoscopy. I did not realize that uh, colon cancer is on the rise in young people. Yeah. Um, especially between the ages of uh, 20 and 39. And uh, so, and, and I'm a physician and I didn't know that. And right. so I thought that I was stressed out and I ignored my symptoms and then ended up getting this crazy diagnosis of straight stage three rectal cancer. Um, after waking up from a colonoscopy performed by a friend who right. was as white she was as white as a ghost when she came in to tell me my diagnosis. She said she'd Aww. never seen this in someone so young. Um, and so I'm trying to be an advocate in educating people about about colon cancer and, and getting screened and knowing the symptoms. Could you tell people what symptoms you were having or how what, and, and what? Do you think you had it that whole two years, though? Or I mean, gosh, surely not. So they actually think it was probably growing for about five years. Really? It was so large. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I had symptoms for two and a half years. I had blood in my stool. I was studying for a board exam, my critical care boards. Mm-hmm. I was stressed out. I would see blood like once and then maybe like a month later it was gone. And then a couple months later it would come back and then it would go away again. And blood in the stool is never ever normal. Right. But I thought that I was stressed out. It would go away. I never lost weight. I never had pain. My blood counts were normal. I checked them just to make sure. And uh, so, you know, why would a healthy 37 to 40 year old think that they have cancer, you know, just with a little bit of blood in their stool? Um, But I ended up getting colonoscopy and it saved my life. So what finally, because I I feel like yeah, exactly. Like you said, first of all, it's never normal, but when it's kind of coming and going, not that much, you know, it's not that often you're like, well, you probably got a fissure or an internal hemorrhoid or something that we just, you know, not a big deal. So what pushed you over the edge to go get a colonoscopy? Was it just getting more frequent or worse? It it was getting more frequent, and uh, by the time that I ended up having my colonoscopy, I was having um, a lot of more diarrhea and kind of urgency, and those uh-huh. are also signs of, of colon cancer. So, you know, symptoms are changes in stool, constipation, diarrhea, uh, pain, weight loss, blood in your stool, and so all of those things are, are abnormal. So if you have those symptoms, even as minor of, you know, a symptom is, you know, constipation. It's something to be investigated for sure. Yeah. And, you know, a colonoscopy, I think people are genuinely terrified to get it because it's an involved test. It's not like an x-ray or CT where you just roll up and get your test done. I mean, you got to drink the literal Kool-Aid the whole day before and essentially clear yourself out from top to bottom. Right. And that is probably the (laughs) the worst part. 
Um, and it, I think it definitely deters people from, from getting a colonoscopy because who wants to have, you know, diarrhea for 12 hours when they're doing their colonoscopy prep? It's not fun, but a colonoscopy is better than chemotherapy. And right. so that's, that's my belief for sure. Had you seen a GI or any, had, had you seen anybody prior to your colonoscopy or, or share, like told anybody, or you were just kind of, uh, I hadn't. And I think, you know, talking about bowel movements and colon and the rectum, is just not, it's it, not I the coolest. Like not, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And I wish that we could normalize it a little bit more. I mean, colon cancer is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And, uh, um, you know, like I said, early onset colon cancer and rectal cancer is, is becoming more prevalent. You know, one out of 10 people that are diagnosed with colon cancer are under the age of 45. So it's growing. And uh, I feel like we need to normalize being able to talk about bowel movements and, you know, getting our colon screening at, totally. at 45. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it just, it's so important. And it's one of those that, like you said, I mean, everything's internal, you know, like you don't necessarily see or feel anything that's going on. It's just based on your symptoms, which I mean, in your case, like you said, I mean, they can be vague, they can be ongoing for a long time. And I think we just get in this mindset of, yeah, it's been going on and, and therefore it's fine. Right. Like it's, it's been a long time and that must mean it, that it's fine. Um, so I, I totally just lost my th train of thought, but, um, oh, have you changed your, so talking about risk factors, have you changed anything like in your diet or in your lifestyle? I know you've been crushing a Peloton, but. Right. Um, so randomly coffee has been found to independently improve outcomes in people with, uh, colon cancer. So I am Thank God. drinking, I'm drinking coffee and I've never drank coffee until two months ago. Really? So I'm drinking, mm -hmm. I've made it through medical school residency fellowship on diet Mountain Dew. That was my thing. And I had the cavities to prove it. Oh my God. But, Do you think that's what did it, Laura? I bet it was the Mountain Dew. I've been, it has oh. to be. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Diet thankfully, my, thankfully my brother's a dentist. So, and he went to dental school here. So I was his practice oh. patient all the time. Oh my gosh. Um, you and Eric but, Lynch and your diet Mountain Dews. Ugh. I know. I it's, know. So things that decrease your risk for colon cancer mm -hmm. are aspirin and being physically active and, uh, fiber and calcium and, uh, decreasing consumption of red meat and processed meat. Those are the big things. Have you read and Will Bolshewitz's book, um, Fiber, Fiber Fueled? So I ordered it after I listened to uh, the podcast with him, but I haven't <laughs> had time to read it yet. <laughs> it's really good. It's, it's great. I mean, and so talk about if you want people to help normalize poops, that's like his goal, I feel like, in life, is to get people to eat more plants and talk about poop. So... Um, Maybe we can get a, some sort of Charleston campaign together about um, talking about our poops because it just shouldn't be that big of a deal. But I, I, I love him. He's great. Um, he's a physician here for y'all. who, And you should listen to the podcast with him. He talks about those very things, fiber and, um, you know, red meat consumption and how now red meat in and of itself is a, a basically a known carcinogen, which is a cause right. of cancer. So 
um, so many reasons to, to not be eating, um, things like red meat, which is hard. I mean, like I want to eat a burger, you know, it's just, I do sometimes, but not as much as I want to, because I know that it comes with repercussions, sadly. Right. So do you eat red meat or no? I do. So, uh, I actually do more of a low carb diet and Uh because of my resection for my colon cancer, I lost about a foot and a half of my rectum and my uh, colon. And so I actually have a hard time eating anything green, most fruits and vegetables. It causes a lot of uh, GI distress. And so I enjoy a burger more than I enjoy a salad for sure. Oh, that's interesting. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean, gosh, you gotta you know stay alive and keep your weight on and get your protein, and I'm sure that's really hard balance. But right. you had um, the type of surgery that you had. You had a temporary colostomy for what three three months, six months. I actually had it for ten days, which what? is which is really unheard of in the uh, colon cancer world. Who did that um, for you? Who was your surgeon? That's incredible. His name is Virgilio George and he's at yeah, NSC and yeah. he, he's amazing. Um, and also very good looking. He <laughs> gave me a, he, he gave me a rectal exam the first time I met mm-hmm. him and I was mortified because mm-hmm. I thought that he was cute and you know, he stuck his Neat. finger up my butt. So. Neat. You're like, here I am. Here is my literal right. ass and you are right. a very attractive human. So yes. <laughs> But, um, but he believes that if you do a quick reversal of the ileostomy that's done, Uh that you have, you have less symptoms of, uh, clustering of stools and diarrhea and problems with incontinence of stool later on. Um, and it feels like you have a better recovery. So I had my ileostomy for 10 days total, which was glorious because I didn't like it very much. No, I'm sure it's a pain. So for if people are listening, I'm sure they're like, what are you even talking about? So in colostomy or ileostomy, they're, they're different just depending on the, what basically geography of where they are in your GI tract. So if you'll see the people with an external bag, so so that means that something either surgery or for some reason, their colon or rectum doesn't work. And so they have to get their poop out somehow. So the poop goes into this external bag and then you have to deal with that. And it's another wound on your abdomen. And I mean, it's just, it's a pain. I mean, I am sure those 10 days were like, when is this going to end? But 10 days, hey, I mean, that's impressive. I was in the land of thinking it was three and three months or six months until you could get the reversal. Mm-hmm. So he, it, I was very thrilled when I heard only 10 days because I cried when he told me I was going to have to have an ileostomy I'm in sure. the first place. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It's just a, and so young, just a thing to have to deal with. Um, man, mm-hmm. that's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. And I know there's also, I, gosh, I wish I could remember her account. There's somebody on Instagram that is like, that's her thing is if she's got a colostomy for some reason and she's like trying to just help normalize it, you know, because it's just something that you've got to have to live for some people and needs to be normalized and we all need to just move on. 
This episode is sponsored by Celadon, probably one of my favorite places in Charleston. So Celadon is a home store that they have like furniture, pillows, lamps, mirrors, accessories. I mean, everything you could think of for your house. And they have different things than anybody else. I love it. You can take your kids in there. There's like a little kid's corner where they can go watch TV and you can have a cup of coffee or wine or tea or beer. I mean, I don't really know what else you want in life. I love Celadon. They're always having the best sales. And if you're not local, you can go to celadonathome.com where they have tons of stuff from the store. Some of their furniture is on there. You can browse everything that they have and they'll ship it to you. And if you're also in Charleston, make sure you check out their warehouse where they have even better sales than they do in the store. We love Celadon. Absolutely. Um, so tell us about your Peloton adventures, your friend. I read your post. I literally cried when I read your post about, um, your coworkers giving you a Peloton and what you had done with it. So do tell us about that. And then, (laughs) (laughs) so sweet. So I know I have the best coworkers. Um, I work at the VA in the emergency room and I, um, spent six months on chemotherapy for my colon cancer and uh, there was a point in time where I developed side effects from the oral chemo that I was on Uh that caused me to really not be able to run or walk my feet became very red and peeled and everything hurt like just even standing or stepping on my feet were it was just really painful and I loved to work out. I went to Orange Theory prior to getting my Peloton and I worked out three or four days a week and I found that I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and so they all got together and bought me a Peloton, which came in December and I was completely worried that it was going to be an expensive clothing rack because I had never cycled before and right. I have, I have rectal cancer and so my bum is oh, yeah. always sore because I go to the bathroom. Um, but padded shorts, padded biking shorts are the best things ever. So I wear padded biking shorts and I started working out every single day on my Peloton. And uh, last week I hit my 1000th ride. So I, and I hit my 47th. So I've done 47 <laughs> rides since March. So we're really on a similar pace. If you're right, doing right. A thousand over the last not even a year, and I've done forty seven. It's a very similar activity level that we're having. So I I appreciate your hard work. But I mean seriously, so you you're and you share it on Instagram, and I'm like, how did she do three or four rides today? I don't understand it. I mean, your stamina must just be crazy right now. So I ride slowly. I'm by no means a super athlete, and uh, um my husband will make fun of me because sometimes I'll be checking my email while doing the ride and I'll miss, you know, getting up out of the saddle or increasing my speed or something like that. But I really just wanted to move my body. There's an article that came out in like the journal of physiology last year that showed that high intensity interval training decreases the rate of colon cancer cell growth. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, in case there are little tiny cells of colon cancer running around my body, I want them to slow down and not grow. And so I really feel like being able to work out helps with that. And it helps with my, you know, my mental sanity as well. I mean, 2020 has been horrible for everybody. So it, this gives me a good release of, of stress. 
So t- going back to your chemo, did you and your feet burning and all that? Gosh, that's crazy. Was that from the Zalota or what? I guess you. What were you on? It was. It was from the Zalota. Ugh. Did you work mm-hmm. during that or did, were you taking some time off? I feel like I you were tr- working. I tried to work. I worked part time. Gosh. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, Laura, your story, it's really, it just, it's crazy. And you're such a hard worker and so obviously dedicated to medicine and what you're doing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so impressive. And thanks for sharing it with everybody. Oh, well, thank you. I wouldn't have it any other way. I, lo- I love my job. I feel very fortunate to be here and to have yeah. gone through what I've gone through. So you're at a year and a half out since your diagnosis and the goal is always to get to five years so right all right well we'll keep chatting and keep in touch and see you at your five-year mark I'm sure but um thank you so much for chatting and taking the time out of your day to talk yeah thank you for having me I appreciate it yeah all right well if you guys as always if you liked the podcast if you like hearing from medical professionals rate subscribe um, share share your friends uh, share with your friends and family that's how people find us Um, and if you have any questions or want to see any guests shoot me a message on instagram at dabbleco or shoot me an email at the dabbleco at gmail.com all right thanks see you guys next week